Hey, hey, sexy scientists. Coming up is a fascinating conversation with my friend Julie, who has an incredible project where she has interviewed sex workers and other women who work in the red light district of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I just wanted to provide a little bit of context because we kind of really dive into our conversation and get a little bit sidetracked, although totally related um, in this conversation around trafficking and the anti-trafficking movement and the areas where that is problematic. I love this interview because it's sort of like this window into a world that we don't get exposure to and there is just so much media and story around sex work and women who are sex workers being victims and slaves, etc. And the fact of the matter is, on the, in the majority, for, for the majority, I should say, that's not true. Um, so anyways, I was really excited about this little window and also made me excited about interviewing perhaps sex work, more sex workers themselves um, of all kinds. And if some of you are out there listening and want to come on, please give us a shout through the website sexlabwithlara.com. Um, I would love to talk to people who are doing all different kinds of sex work um, so we can start to rewrite the story and show the empowered side of this and also keep recognizing that as long as sex work is illegal, there will be a dark side, a potential dark side for every sex worker. Okay, Whew. I am tired. I was tired during this interview uh, which we just finished a little while ago. I'm editing right away. Um, and yeah, it turns out launching a school is a lot of work. And it has been so expansive to launch the Artemis School for Women's Sexual Wellness. So rewarding and really long hours. Um, but I would be honored for men and women alike to check out my new project, the website is being rolled out and worked on artemisschool.com and we're enrolling women right now for our module that starts June 26th and you can um, sign up there to, you can apply there and, and we'll get on the phone and talk and see if it's a good fit for you and this is a program for health practitioners wellness practitioners as well as women who want to go deep into their own journey around their sexuality. So it's really available to all women. Okay, now without further ado, please enjoy the show. Phallic. <laughs> yes, very phallic. <laughs> I don't know if there's other options for microphones, but it, it's quite appropriate. No, it's amazing. For the and sex lab. Because the sound, like, it feels closer because yeah. of the sound. Yeah. yeah. How do you say your last name? Ruvolo. Ruvolo. Are you Italian? Yeah. Did we already talk about this? I don't think so. I'm Italian too. Oh, nice. Yes. Italian sisters. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like Southern Italian. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. So do you want to just start by talking about what you're doing in the world? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I'd probably start back to what I was doing before I was doing this. Perfect. I was um, living in New York City running a startup I had co-founded. I was on this like very digital career track since I got out of college. Um, actually, I have to start even before that undergrad in college. That's actually where my entire Rio story arc starts. Okay. Um, so I'll keep it brief. So uh, in undergrad, I ended up studying abroad in Rio and doing research for my thesis and living abroad and learning Portuguese um, and kind of uh, 
was totally fascinated when I realized that most of the guys on my exchange program were paying for sex and talking quite openly about it. Hmm. Um, and that like blew my 20 year old mind, <laughs> like who I thought paid for sex or sold it. Um, I had had only kind of one other encounter with anyone who actually did sex work before that, which was a friend of mine who was stripping in college. Um, and I was like, oh my God, this is something my peers are doing. Um, I was fascinated. So from that point on and tried to like get a Fulbright grant to study Rio sex tourism. And they were like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And then I kind of embarked on this digital career path. Um, So for the better part of a decade, I was doing digital media stuff, um, but never lost interest in the subject matter. Um, So then in, uh, it's been like four years now, um, I just dropped everything in New York and was like, it's time. I think kind of like I'd built up the risk appetite for it, Mm. like kind of doing startup stuff and then consulting and then starting my own company. It just kind of like successive, like getting comfortable with taking risks um, until I finally felt like I was like ready to go back and do whatever. But in some ways hadn't advanced at all in the sense that I had no like no institution I'd partnered with to do it, no NGOs that were doing work around the area that I knew about. I was just like, I'm going to Rio. (laughs) I love this concept of like building up, how did you say that? Building up your risk, your ability to take risk. Yeah. That's that's just a cool life lesson. Or I'm sure it's just the way I'm constructing my narrative looking back, but at least I see that kind of pattern Mm -hmm. emerge Mm -hmm. to actually get comfortable with. Get comfortable, yeah, that's what you said. Kind of throwing everything out the door, basically. Yeah, so what, okay, so you wanted to investigate sex work. Yeah, specifically sex tourism at the time. Okay, so what is sex tourism? So sex tourism, I mean, there are legal definitions and otherwise, but a lot of people think sex tourism means these, like, kind of, like, gnarly older men from, like, somewhere in Europe that, like, go on sex vacations and plan a vacation around, like, having sex with local women. And they're often kind of pegged as being like child predators too. Like maybe they want to go Mm. to places, you know, where there's poor women or they can have access to younger women. That's kind of one of the perceptions of sex tourism. I mean, the anti-trafficking movement looks at people who engage in that behavior as like predators enabling slavery, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, In Rio, the kind of profile of a sex tourist, if if you will, is quite a bit different. Um, so, so more broadly than the definition would be somebody who engages in commercial sex while they're somewhere on vac- while they're abroad, basically. Um, they've crossed some kind of you know geographic boundary and they're engaging in commercial sex, which is illegal or legal depending on the place. And well, I was ooh, hello. I was recently in Thailand, right? So that's like a whole thing, sex tourism there with. Um, from the shows to you know like sex work is there it's everywhere um and it's sort of like i was exposed to like some ex uh pats and like people who had spent time there or regularly worked there traveled there americans and um yeah like you know hiring a sex worker is like okay it's like part of the deal and for some reason because you're on foreign turf it makes it okay um so yeah that's interesting so i guess what my point is that it seems like there's certain destinations where people are actually that's part of what they're seeking out in their travels there's certainly the perception that there's these like sex tourism destinations and Uh rio is definitely considered one of them incidentally for gay people and straight people Mm -hmm. and i don't know if other cities have that that kind of flexibility um, but but if you look at the actual profile of a sex tourist in Rio, there's a two anthropologists who've been studying axes of sex tourism and sex work in Rio for and Brazil more broadly for over a decade. They're like the resident sex anthropologists, Thaddeus Blanchett and Ana Paula da Silva. Um, so they actually have data on like what kind of people frequent what kinds of places in Rio. Hmm. They've actually mapped out the entire known sex industry in Rio, which has almost 300 different addresses of commercial venues, and have like organized them against where do locals go, where do foreigners historically go, what are the price ranges, where are areas that are being kind of like 
um, gentrified for World Cup in the Olympics, all sorts of good data. Anyway, in the course of all of their work, they, they um, came to say that the profile of a sex tourist is actually more the profile of a guy who goes down to Rio and like his friend who's already been there is like, you're like a fucking rock star, man. There's gonna be women everywhere, these hot Brazilian chicks. They're all gonna wanna fuck you because you're a foreigner. You know, that kind of like, they get pumped up mentality. Yeah. There's definitely the perception of Brazil and Rio in particular is this like hypersexed place. Um, but then, you know, maybe the guy goes down there and like doesn't get to go to the best parties because he doesn't actually know anybody in Rio. And maybe he finds that the girls aren't actually as easy as he thought they would be. And maybe on the one of his last nights of his trip, he winds up at this bar and beachfront Copacabana where there's sex workers. Like that's more of kind of how mm. like the pro- if you had to profile the type of person, it's not someone who meticulously plans a vacation where they're going to go and spend their life savings on sex so it's like <laughs> those are like hobbyists they're in the minority uh-huh okay uh so in 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 brazil uh being a sex worker is a legally rec- federally recognized occupation um there's really? there's a lot of criminalization around the industry of sex work and hmm. third parties who profit off of the transaction but actually being a sex worker as a result of the sex workers rights movement that started in the 80s in brazil like the Ministry of Work recognizes that as an occupation, and there's so certain they benefits pay that come with it. Taxes and um, yeah, I mean the question is like, who really wants to register with the government? Right, like, I'm a prostitute, <laughs> you know. Right, but yeah, they're entitled to certain retirement funds. Um, but the the point is that actually sex tourism is also not illegal. There's nothing on the books that is illegal about a foreigner engaging in sex with a legally working Brazilian sex worker. Okay. Um, and the tr- funny thing is that there's been like this massive campaigning, um, as happens in every host city for the mega sports events like the Olympics and Super Bowl and World Cup. But the campaigning in Brazil around World Cup was like, you know, anti sexual exploitation. Everyone can get behind that. Like anti sex trafficking, totally, and anti sex tourism. Mm. So you've got these NGOs and this kind of like quote unquote feminist movement saying, like, don't. Don't, you know, feed the locals kind of. Is this coming out of Brazil or? This is actually like international. This is like a pattern that's happened at every host city since the Greek Olympics in 2004. Interesting. Um, But they also, so they're saying, you know, we don't want sex trafficking to happen at these events and we don't want sex tourism to happen. And they use the terms interchangeably, which in Brazil is actually a problem, right? Because it pits foreign NGOs against the body of organized sex workers that actually was hoping to make more money with more tourists coming into town. Mm. So to kind of moralize and say sex trafficking is, you know, don't pay for sex with kids, but don't pay for sex at all, as if those are equally weighted crimes. Can you define sex trafficking? Sex trafficking is really tricky. Um, I mean, because it's a really... Yeah, I'll start off with not like an actual dictionary definition, but to make a comment on the, the overall concept here, right? Sex, sex trafficking has to be one of the most like universally deplorable things we could think of on the planet, you know, like especially like sex trafficking of children. So forcing someone into commercial sex work, especially like a child, that's got to be like that and like, you know, dismembering psycho killer style there's like a short list of horrific things so the question then is why is this such a divisive movement it mm-hmm. seems like we should all be on the same side everybody should be anti-sex trafficking mm-hmm. um, so sex trafficking if you think about it in like a reasonable sense is exactly that it's like someone being forced or coerced into commercial sexual labor uh, the problem is that this like anti-trafficking movement uh the large part of it um which has its roots in the anti-pornography movement several decades before it, Hmm. looks at all forms of sex work, including pornography, as exploitation. They say this is inherently oppressive towards women. Uh, No woman in her right mind would choose to do this work, so anybody who's doing it must be forced some way or another, and we can certainly say they're all victims. Right. Therefore, (laughs) all sex work is effectively sex trafficking. So there, the technical definition of sex trafficking is coercion and force. Yeah. 
Um, however, and, and movement over distance in a lot of the definitions. Okay, it has to be movement involved. Okay, yes, and um, well, we saw this happen in Los Angeles a couple of years ago on the ballot. Um, I don't know that you were around at that time, but there was a law um, regarding human trafficking, and the way that it was written and the details are sketchy right now in my mind I, I think I even wrote a blog in relation to this but it, um, the way that it was written was really sketchy because it did kind of cast this very wide net and it could be a situation where like a, a mother who is involved in sex work and had a you know and was using the money for her family then like members of her family could be considered you know part of the traffic ring you know like (laughs) just way too wide of a net where innocent people and um, people who weren't were actually choosing sex work could be wrapped up in these laws yeah Yeah, it's it's really um, a crazy kind of framework if you think about it Um, so so the, there's been a series of laws that have, it could, right, it's going back to kind of the point I was saying about like how could this be a controversial issue? Yes. Like abortion, guns, these are really like, there's issues with two sides, you know. What's the other side of the anti-trafficking movement? If you're not anti-trafficking, what are you? Um, and what that means is that you're anti-sex worker. So um, if you look at the, the example of legislation in California, there's, there was similar legislation passed in Alaska, I think. So what people started doing was arresting sex workers as traffickers. Mm-hmm. So you have like two women who maybe shared an apartment together yeah. and they would get arrested together. But since you couldn't call them, you know, arrest them for prostitution charges, you're arresting them for trafficking each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's actually like the kind of absurd thing that's happening with these kinds of laws. Um, if you take a, like a really like logical approach to this, you could say, okay, there's a certain population of people who do sex work on the planet, and it comes in all shapes and sizes. There's like a socioeconomic range from like really dirt poor women in the third world to like Elliot Spitzer's escort. What was her name? I'm forgetting it. You know, there's like those are the two archetypes. Like she's either like a slave in bondage in a dusty village, or she's like an escort. Anyway, so there's a range of experiences and types of sex works, as you know quite well. Um, so to universally call it, it's it's really kind of infantilizing if you think of the the premise of saying, well, everybody who engages in that work is has got to be messed up or ex- exploited. You know, like where are all these people, and why aren't we hearing from them? Yeah, uh, and so the biggest kind of criticism I would make of the anti-trafficking movement, and there are many that I could make, um, and uh, including the real ugly slate of hand with saying like we're trying to help this group of people, and then pushing for policies that end up hurting that group of people, um, which I can kind of get back to how that's uh, unfolded in Rio. Um, but it's a really insidious thing to say like you don't you can't actually speak for yourself. Totally. Yeah. And this idea that all sex workers are disempowered and victims and is is just not true. I have a lot of like, like uh, when I talk with women when I'm back in the U.S. about the work I'm doing and they'll be like, yeah, I'm so interested in this cause as well. You know, I, I think that 99% of women who do sex work are exploited or in slavery. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's like a really big percentage. Yeah. Um, which has absolutely no numerical founding. Then it's a direct descendant of this logic that all sex work is exploitative. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, that, that's an argument that crumbled with pornography. It was a 1973 court case, Miller versus California. And they ruled that pornography was media ruled by, you know, free speech issues. Um, but this idea that all pornography is inherently exploitative of women. So, you know, another criticism you could make about this whole movement is that it's entirely heteronormative. Mm. I've yet to ever hear anybody as part of the anti-sex trafficking movement utter one word about men or boys. Because, so, you know, yeah, guys point. like to fuck, yeah. right? And women don't. So right, right. we must be slaves forced into it whereas like oh we're not worried about the guys they're probably having fun right 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 i'm going to invite you closer to your mic oh, or or sure. bring the mic closer to you okay it's <laughs> um, <so> loud <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a roundabout way but you know it's taking me like several years actually of unpacking this kind of stuff because 
I came into the subject matter, I think like a lot of people, I read something about how the Super Bowl was going to be a magnet for sex trafficking. And I was like, how is it possible in this day and age that there are women and girls being forced into this kind of work? Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of started me down my own rabbit hole of being going, wow, there's like actually a whole political context behind this. And, uh, and there's collateral damage to the anti-trafficking movement. There's a few big issues going on. One is that it's sucking resources away from sex worker organizations. Mm-hmm. Like these are like in the U.S. there's SWAP, right? Sex Worker Outreach Project. Okay, I'm not familiar with It's like with a that. national network of, I think, entirely volunteers. Like they don't get funded. Like if you have, like there are so many anti-trafficking NGOs that have millions and millions of dollars in funding because this is like cause du jour, even if they're, even if sex trafficking is not nearly as big of a problem as the media reports that it is. Right. But you've got sex workers who aren't getting access to resources. And then the weirder thing is that you've got, like, the way I look at this is, is if we thought about it reasonably, the population that's most at risk to be sex trafficked in the world is sex workers. Hmm. So if you think about, like, women and men who engage in sex work, if you could think about, like, the set of those people at the worst end of the working condition spectrum. Maybe they were like poor and someone bought them a ticket and they don't know where they're staying. You can kind mm-hmm. of imagine what that scenario, what would that look like to really feel like you have no choices? Mm-hmm. You know, you've tried, you're an Ill- you migrate illegally into another country and someone takes your passport and makes you pay, pay them back the money. Like, okay, those are all um, scenarios. But um, so, so I look at sex workers as the most at risk population to be trafficked or exploited mm. versus this kind of like taken myth that it's like Kidnapped a people. white undergrad on vacation in right. Europe. Right. That there's like rings of people who want to shoot her up with heroin and sell her out. Right. <laughs> like, right. I think that's a total myth. So, so if we could agree on the premise that sex workers themselves are most at risk for sexual violence related to commercial sex, mm. uh, then, then we have to ask the question of why the anti-trafficking movement and the uh, prostitutes movement are or sex workers rights movements are 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 on opposite sides Mm, and it turns out that anti-trafficking actually is anti-sex work because Uh the premise is um, we want to abolish all forms of sex work from the planet including your source of livelihood yes yes okay we're gonna get back we're gonna circle back because i want to i want to bring this train back on the track of your timeline, so your undergrad, you were exposed to your friends paying for sex, and then you were in the digital world in New York building a career, and then you went back to Brazil to investigate. And I, and I think it's important to say, because we didn't say this, that you were making a film. Were you planning on making a film at that time? No, I was not planning on making a film. I was starting to freelance and write about different subject matter related to sex trafficking and how much of the internet is for porn. I, at the time, launched, that's when I um, started working with the Museum of Sex in New York and launched mm. digital publications for them. So I was starting to engage with sexual subject matter and wanted to re-engage with that down in Rio, but had no kind of specific plan in place at all. Okay. I was like, oh, I hope I have the courage to kind of like kick around and do something about this. Okay. (laughs) So then what happened? So pretty quickly I met, oh, go ahead. Yeah, getting back to kind of where you are now with this project. So I met these sex anthropologists I told you about, and they like took me under their wing. I started reading their papers and learning more about the actual sex industry in Rio, the history of the sex workers rights movement in Brazil, started actually kind of do an independent study, if you will. Um, And that's when Thad started telling me about the sex map of data they had. And if you look at like the 300 or so addresses on that map, most of those are places I as a woman can't actually visit. They're hmm. closed venues. They're like little closed venues. And the only women who can go in are sex workers. Like kind of like bars or clubs? Like little brothels or, okay. or like imagine office buildings, massage parlor style, uh-huh. you know, like lots of kind of closed venues. Nondescript buildings yeah. that yeah okay. yeah the biggest concentration of them is in the downtown area serviced by like working class guys on their lunch break who go in for a quick 15 minutes mm-hmm. or less less than a half hour and get like cheap fast prices like that's kind of more of the face of sex work in rio um so so that had said well there's one place on the map i can take you which is the red light district villa mimosa it's this historic 
place. You know, it's actually been evicted three separate times by the city over the last hundred years in preparation for visits from important tourists. It's got like all this really interesting history. Is that the zone? Yeah, that's what like women who work there call it the zona uh, mm-hmm. informally, which is like a slightly uh, different. Uh, slightly degradatory term because mm. um, zona also implies like mess kind of like mm. but it is the red light district in Rio is a total mess it's like got this post-apocalyptic look it's just one dot on that map of 300 but there's about a hundred brothels on that at, at that address mm. so it's the biggest sex venue in Rio um, and so we went one day um, with uh, Greg uh, Gregory Mitchell who's a gender studies professor at uh, Williams and the three of us went and grabbed beer. I think there was a Dutch anthropologist as well. <laughs> and I was like fascinated by the place. It's mm-hmm. just visually arresting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some pictures on my website of it. Um, so I wanted to take pictures immediately. And Thad was like, you can't. This is a militia controlled area. Hmm. Most of the sex venues in Rio are actually, this is the thing no one really wants to talk about. They're paying off some combination of the police and the militia to stay open because while sex work is legal profiting third parties profiting off of sex work uh which is a really blanket you know vague term is illegal so you could say oh that's anti-pimping like pimping is illegal Mm -hmm. but it's also technically illegal to operate a brothel right so for the city to have hundreds of them that they know about like people are getting paid off so so you can you can do sex work but you don't have any place to really do it safely and uh, above the you know above the law no yeah. no and that's and that's the problem with how that law is structured in a number of countries if if that law means that the only place you can legally work is the street which is the most dangerous place you right. could work that th- we've got issues right um so <laughs> so he said uh the woman who runs this place is a woman named grassa you should seek her out kind of a long adventure but about a month later i finally tracked her down she's this like reclusive old lady and she's the president of the Association of Brothel Owners of the Red Light District. Um, and I kind of was like, hi, <laughs> I'm Julie from California. Um, I want to take pictures here and I don't have any, you know, I'm not here with anyone. I don't have any affiliations. And she kind of gave me this weird look and I don't know what made her decide to, but she said, okay, you have my authorization to be here. Wow. And I was like, my heart like was like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what I didn't realize at the time was that that had to mean that she told the militia, leave this girl alone with her camera. So this is not the kind of place you can take pictures. Right. And security is not wearing uniforms and asking, you know, if you need any help. Right. <laughs> wow. But I felt like a door open. And so what's otherwise like um, a pretty violent, problematic place. There's a lot of kind of socioeconomic despair. I could talk a lot about what the red light district is like Um, a door opened up it was like this chance encounter between women Mm -hmm. um, and I actually felt the visceral sensation of a door opening Mm. and I didn't know kind of how long it would stay open but I said there's my window Um, so long story short that's uh, I started photographing different women and printing out their portraits and some people didn't want to talk to me and some did and I ended up um, meeting one woman named Alini and we just hit it off Mm -hmm. Um, I actually paid her for an interview for her time. That's like the customary thing to do. And we just became buddies. Um, And so over the last two years, um, she and I have been filming interviews with women who make a living in the red light district, whether that's as sex workers or managers of brothels or bartenders or cleaning ladies or manicurists Mm. or whatever. Uh, There's a whole, we interviewed, um, I don't know, less than 80 but yeah, probably 70 or 80 different women, mm. probably 100 different interviews um, with the kind of all sorts of different women from different walks of life who supported themselves working there. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And it blew my mind uh, and um, really ch- challenged what I thought I knew about sex work. I bet. And what's the website where people can see the interviews? So the project is called Red Light Rio, and it's redlightr.io is the url cool you can also just google red light rio and click on it um so it's a massive amount of content it's um and i've got it all organized by keywords so there were over 200 different conversation topics that this group of women talked about um and the coolest part is that i wasn't driving the conversation most of the time uh, mm. half the interviews alini filmed on her own and mm. i wasn't even there mm. uh, she filmed while she was at work and the other half i was filming but she was off camera 
taking part in the conversation. So even though I was like, oh, I'm open-minded, liberal, young woman, the conversation I would have had would have been completely different than the conversation Alini had knowing some of these women for over a decade as colleagues, neighbors, friends. So do they live there and work in that area? Most people don't. Um, Alini lives in the same neighborhood. She's like walking distance. Some women travel quite far. It's at a convenient location in terms of like bus lines and subway lines, train lines, I guess. Um, uh, the only women that I met who, there's like some, uh, there's some like residential, it's, what happened was that the red light district in the 90s when it moved into this area was a res- residential area. Okay. So there's definitely still residential parts to it. So what is the most surprising thing that came out of those interviews for you? So, you know, people often think like, oh, you know, uh, the, well, people have a lot of hangups about sex work and how they imagine it. And one is like the physicality of having sex with that many people. Mm-hmm. You know, like anti-trafficking um, stories will always be like, and then she was forced to have sex with 10 to 20 men a day. And, uh, you know, God forbid anybody be forced to have sex with anyone, a single person. I certainly don't want to make light of that. But when I talked to... to um, the women we interviewed in this project, and we said, what's a good day for you? They'd say 10 to 20 clients. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but so, Good uh, meaning income-wise. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, I didn't say good income-wise. Yeah. I just said, what's a good work day oh, for you? Yeah. You know? And a bad day would be no clients. Right, right. Um, Got so, it. So totally different framework. So p- people get really hung up on the physicality of sex work. Yeah. Um, the stories that emerged from this kind of body of interviews were just all over the place, but a lot of really depressing, heavy stuff. Like, um, this is a really kind of socioeconomically, like, messed up place. Um, And so you had stories of women who said, you know, I had no money. I couldn't pay for my bus home, so I came here, and that's how I started. Like, that kind of heavy stories. Um, So given all of that context, what surprised me was was, um, the answer to my favorite question that we would ask, um, which was, you know, let's step out of everything we've talked about, and if you could have a genie, a genie come out of a lamp and grant you three wishes like go wild mm-hmm. what would you wish for? and then be for who for me I'm like whatever you know um it's a really uncomfortable question to be asked mm-hmm. I don't like being asked it but I love asking it <laughs> uh, and so like people said all sorts of stuff but there were like buckets of complaints or wishes one was like oh I wish I had a better way to make the same amount of money I wish that this place wasn't so dirty and dangerous I wish that the music was not as loud because I think I'm going deaf here. You know, those kinds of things. But the number one most overwhelming response was, I wish that, insert my uh, boyfriend, husband, kids, mom, neighbor, society in general would judge me just a little bit less for the work I do. Mm. And that blew me away. Mm-hmm. That what I was hearing over and over again was not, please come save me. It was not, get me out of here. Mm. It was not like, oh, I wish I never had to do this work again. It was, I wish the people around me judged me a little less, a little bit, don't have to accept me, but judged me a little bit less for it. Then I started thinking about the what's what that means to be talking about social pain yeah. versus physical pain and the pain of stigma mm-hmm. and of being marginalized and of being, um, marginalized means you, you're, you're robbed of your agency and voice. Mm-hmm. You're like this invisible figure mm-hmm. that people are speaking on behalf of, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying not to ask leading questions because I have like, I feel my own projections and ideas wanting to come in. Um, so I'm really trying to edit myself, <laughs> but I should just stop doing that. Um, yeah, I... I it's interesting because I've watched a couple of the videos and it's not like the women were like yeah this is great like I'm happy to be here but I I feel like what I'm hearing you say is that it's not necessarily the nature of the work that they're doing it's the conditions and the social stigma that's the hardest part yeah 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 that's that's um and I would say another thing that kind of emerged, and I would propose a way that we reframe how we look at some of this stuff, 
uh, you know, I had the same thing, like, uh, what frame am I putting on this? Yeah. What emotion am I bringing to this? A lot of people question why I'm interested in this subject matter at all, as if, like, you're sub- suspect if you're interested in sex as yeah. subject matter. <laughs> totally. you know? And I internalize that, too. But um, yeah. but I, I was very cognizant of that as well. Like, you know, am, am I putting forth my views or am I just serving the role of an editor? Mm-hmm. So there's like no narration except for when I write context for an interview I'm posting mm-hmm. and try to give a little bit of paint a bit of a picture. It's women speaking for themselves. Um, I will say though that I had a perspective that emerged from that. One is this kind of piece about stigma and asking ourselves, oh, you want to go help people? Judge them a little less harshly. Mm-hmm. People go, oh, that's great. Like, oh, I, I feel the... I feel the compassion and I say like would you hire a a former prostitute like who would possibly so like we have to take a look at ourselves you know Mm -hmm. who would hire oh you want to save this person and help them find another way to support themselves like would you hire them it's like no right Um, but that goes back to money and the thing that emerged everyone we interviewed without exception was supporting herself with her own money Mm-hmm. Everyone but one woman who was 18 was also supporting at least one family member. One woman I interviewed at one point was supporting 12 family members. And Grasa, the old lady who runs the red light district and used to be a prostitute in it, she has uh, 12 kids. 11 of them are adopted. So I started to see this whole new mm-hmm. framework emerge of sex workers as independent women and as breadwinners and yeah. as moms. Yeah, uh, and I had nothing but respect because I can barely <laughs> take care of myself, mm-hmm. you know. And I come from this like very privileged first world, you know, many options context. Mm-hmm. So to be with this group of women who like socioeconomically were just on the other side of the planet than me, and to feel not like pity or you know you feel a range of emotions going through this kind of immersive project, but to walk out of that feeling respect and being like you started off like Alini for example she had three kids by the time she was 18 like didn't have any advanced college degree or anything was like selling food as a food vendor and needed to make it work yeah and she supported her three kids for the last you know they're like they're like college age now Mm -hmm. (laughs) so independent women I I look at it as kind of a, a, a composite storytelling project about independent women in unlikely places yeah and i think sex work globally will will say in a lot of places in the world provides that opportunity for women huge yeah it, it is one of the um most lucrative <laughs> professions for a lot of women for you know and especially women who are um you know, less privileged coming out of poverty, for sure. That can raise them up to like a whole nother level. It's like a common denominator of the narrative that any sex worker tells about his or herself. Mm. Like money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why did you do this? I was making money. I could make money. It's Mm -hmm. about providing for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, you know, if we that's a whole different framework, right? To say, okay, then how could we improve the working conditions of this group of people we're purportedly concerned about? Or, um, you know, how can we make society more just so that uh, single, undereducated moms across the world have access to you know, income, like making actual, you know, opportunities. The other cool thing about the red light district is that despite it's like very rough exterior, um, working condition wise, it's one of the best places to work in Rio. Hmm. So if you look at like the brothel that Justin Bieber went to a couple years ago and was like on the news, he went to like the most overpriced, well-known Ipanema spa brothel there is Mm. um, versus the red light district which is so crappy that most tourists won't go Mm. or if they do go they go just to kind of be brave and say they went Mm. it has it's like not a tourist destination has that kind of reputation so if you just look at those two as contrast points the the place the the luxury spa brothel Justin Bieber went to the women have five to six day work weeks 12 hour minimum shifts they keep half the money they make Mm. And they have to pay exorbitant fines. I'm talking like three to $500 per day fines if they skip work, if they have a cold or they're on their period or whatever. 
And in the wow. red light, I know it's like that's that is exploitation. Yeah, I would say all of those high price escorts, like a lot of whom are also like undergrad students, like totally choosing to do the work, choose to work in exploitative conditions there. And then you've got the red light district, which is much cheaper and much more problematic. But women come and go as they please. There's no schedules. There's no fines. Mm. They keep about seventy five percent on average of the money, which is unheard of. So you also, I also heard a lot of women saying um, the flexibility of this job is also important. Not just that I'm making money, but that I'm effectively working as a freelancer. Do you think the women that work in the spa environments, like there's some sort of infrastructure feeling of protection being in those environments? Is that why the and certainly it's nicer conditions but why would a woman choose that scenario versus red light district so i mean the kind of uh, working conditions i described in the luxury spa brothel you could generalize across like i think a lot of sex work in general like from what i've heard about strip clubs in the u.s there's a lot of exploitative practices Mm -hmm. that are technically not legal charging women shift fees instead of paying them minimum wage that kind of stuff Um, So I would say that like there's kind of like standards of exploitation Mm. in sex industries. That's like a really blanket statement. Um, But I I definitely think it's the exception to the rule where you have, um, you know, like the lusty lady in San Francisco, which is like the country's first unionized worker run, worker owned strip club. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, our future utopia. Yeah. When we're, you know, because it's like you can do sex work, but you can't be in control of your own. You can't do it in a safe environment or you can't do it in any kind of legit environment. Yeah. So you're exploited if you go the high end route and and you're you're not maybe necessarily exploited if you're going, you know, red light district route, but you're at higher risk for a lot of things. So I'd say the main difference is the socioeconomic profile of the, both the people who work there, but more than the women who work there, of the clients who go there. Mm-hmm. So Anna Paula da Silva is a researcher who said that a lot of the differentiation between these kinds of venues has actually less to do with the women because there's a certain fluidity. There are women mm. who will be... Um, charging at a spa brothel, you know, a hundred bucks a program, and then working their off shift in the red light district or at one of these even cheaper places downtown for like five bucks for a quickie type of thing. Mm. There is some kind of fluidity, but on the client side, she made the observation that men want to be seen with other men like them. So at the spa mm-hmm. brothel, you're with other kind of executives and rich guys versus mm. like working class, you know, construction laborers or something interesting yeah i thought that was interesting kind of the constructed environment around it mm-hmm. so more on the customer end than the than the prostitute and sex worker end yeah, yeah. interesting so i found all this stuff to be fascinating yeah uh, and the timing was kind of perfect um that i kind of dropped the subject matter and picked it up a decade later because not only do you have this kind of whole anti-sex trafficking movement that's influencing that's affecting sex workers globally mm-hmm. with their policies, but you also have back-to-back mega events centered in Rio de Janeiro, the World Cup that just passed in the 2016 Summer Olympics that'll be in Rio. And um, were you around for the World Cup? I was. It was very cool. A couple of interesting things happened. So the prediction in the media was the same as the last like decade's worth of mega events. Like It's going to be the biggest sex trafficking event on the planet. It's going to be the biggest sex tourism event on the planet. There's all these like rabid sex crazy soccer fans that are descending in one of the most sinful cities in the world. So who, what's going to happen? Who is so concerned about this and why? It happens. I swear to God, if you start paying attention, it happens around every like Indy 500, Super Bowl. These guys have like a press calendar. And it's like they look for each of the events and then they'll have someone, a spokesperson for an NGO or some police guy say we're expecting a big boom in sex trafficking at this sports event but who do we know who is behind this there's like definitely a core group of ngos you know not to hark hark on that harp on that point but very few people understand that the anti-trafficking movement was in large part started by a similar group of the same core group of feminists who fought the anti-porn movement 
Gloria Steinem, Dorchen Leadhole. Like they're, I call them grandma feminists with like all due respect. Yeah. Because they're grandma's age now. And that would be like Gloria back in her Miz days deferring to the suffragettes mm. and like listening to what they had to say about what it meant to be, f- to, you know, female empowerment. So I kind of think we're in this retro moment because you've got these grandma feminists that are still telling us like, uh, com- transactional sex is bad. Hmm. It's like this moralistic thing, like monogamy is good, or give it up for free as much as you want, but don't acknowledge that there's any kind of exchange going on. Um, so a bit of a rant, but going back to the mega mega events, this is something that happens, and it's a salacious thing. Like people want to publish it because it sounds like this crazy, what a crazy media story. It's really sexy subject matter, and so like all the mm. usual suspects rounded up for Brazil, as well as like the Vatican and the UN traffic movement. Yeah, there's got to be religious organizations. There's a ton of money. Behind. The Salvation Army spent millions of dollars on an ad campaign for the Vancouver Olympics that just happened. You're asking the wrong I was person crazy. About, yeah. You know, and they had all these like slave kind of uh, uh, disaster porn type of like billboards. It was kind of creepy, you know, like model shots of girls in, in shackles and stuff. So anyway. So it's like a warning, like keep an eye on your children because they might get trafficked. Yes. In, there's a brilliant short documentary about this um called don't shout too loud about south africa Mm. and how you had all these like ngos with like well-to-do you know white people going in and educating little black kids in south africa and being like be careful if someone in an unmarked van tries to take you and sell you into sex slavery it's really uncomfortable especially because slavery is a really loaded term so to throw that around to talk indiscriminately about you know uh, people who make a living in the sex trade or what like it's just it's, it's a, I think we should use it with a bit more um, respect mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's ridiculous so so that's the narrative that's been happening since the Greek Olympics in 2004 um, and I wrote a story about this actually I said like I wrote I drafted a kind of a non-history of sex trafficking in sports events because if you look at the media reports the estimates are like 10 to 100,000 victims of sex trafficking per event hmm event so 10 so a decade's worth super bowls olympics and world cups if you count up all the known victims of sex trafficking and keep in mind that for this last decade there's been like millions and millions of dollars allocated to finding them at these events right and like activation campaigns to protect them guess how many victims have been found in the last decade none (laughs) five victims of sex trafficking related to mega sports events they were all in Germany hmm. yeah Germany uh, World Cup um, but the media was like oh sex trafficking doubled in Greece because of the Olympics and it's actually like no the year Greece held the Olympics the total number of cases nationwide jumped from two to four and mm-hmm. none of them were related to the Olympics so there's a complete However, disconnect between the media and like what actually happens on the ground. Sex tourism, I imagine, is at a peak during those events. Ah, so that's yeah. where Rio would be a perfect case study because yeah. it's already like, that's like having the World Cup in Bangkok practically. And if you talk about like international perception of yeah. the local sex industry, like Brazil's like top of the list, you know, this like eroticized landscape. Um, so that's what we thought was going to happen in Brazil and specifically in Rio. So the coolest thing I did, two things happened over World Cup. One was I um, gave Alini my GoPro and was like, can I pay you to film film a little bit of your day every day for 32 days of World Cup? Hmm. So that was kind of a side project of like what her life was like in the red light district half a mile from the Maracanã soccer stadium during World Cup. And then what I spent my time on was working with um, an amazing research collaboration called the Observatory of Prostitution, which is affiliated with the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, the Urban Ethnography Lab, um, and is organized by a group of just absolutely amazing researchers. Um, it's kind of a global coalition, but the, the core people are, are in Rio, anthropologists in Rio. And we logged over 2,000 hours of field work assessing the impact of World Cup on the ground in host cities, most heavily in Rio, on sex workers. Um, and we've released a couple of reports about it already, but um, the expectation in the media was for a big boom in sex tourism. The expectation among sex workers nationwide in Brazil was like, this is going to be a big boom. All the gringos are going to come. Mm-hmm. There were like there was a big news story in the Associated Press about how in one town they were learning English <laughs> so they could you know make more money and talk to the gringo clients and 
you know, charge the right prices. And <laughs> what happened in Rio was actually a, a across the board a significant decrease in in sex sexual commerce during World Cup. Hmm. Business was down um, almost all the way across the city. People were like, how is that possible? Um, and it was actually quite interesting. So if you keep in mind that most of the venues in Rio are frequented by locals, and most of them are specifically downtown and where the red light district is, serving like working class locals on a daily work schedule. Uh, during the 32 days of World Cup, Rio was on holiday like at least every other day. Every time Brazil played a game, every time there was a game in Rio, it was a like mandated holiday. Um, so you had nobody downtown. It's like if you've been to Wall Street on the weekend. Right. It's like empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so business was down in all of the like core of Rio's sex industry and only jumped up for less than 20 venues, all of which were walking distance from the FIFA Fan Fest in Copacabana, which is to say that the pop in sex tourism as a result of World Cup wasn't nearly enough to compensate for the loss of local business hmm. and the disruption to kind of the normal pace of things. Interesting. Um, tourists went to, by and large, the exact same 20 venues they've been going to for a decade. And I laughed at that when I learned that about the data. I was like, Thad, why, why aren't they checking out these other places? They go to the same ones. Like, do they have any idea how big the sex industry is? Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so le- I just want to make one kind of endpoint on yeah. this and bring things full circle. Yeah. Um, while there has not been a pattern of sex trafficking at mega sports events, there has been a pattern over the last decade of violence against sex workers in host cities during mega events. Uh, hmm. So what you have is like this kind of um, framework of anti-exploitation so it's either like let's go in there and find the victims or let's go in there and clean the city up for the tourists and move the homeless people out and the prostitutes and like lots of cities do this it's not just rio Mm -hmm. Um, but the way they did in rio was particularly ugly so i also got to kind of spend a couple of years looking at um looking at how the city uh enacted their anti-prostitution sweeps leading up to the mega events Mm. um and um and so what you've had in all of those host cities, except for Vancouver, but including Rio, is police violence against sex workers, hmm. often in the name of fighting sex, sexual exploitation. Wow. So it kind of begs the question of like, is that wow? The, how could how could anybody call that a successful campaign if the group that I would say is most vulnerable to sexual exploitation is um, is reporting that the police are being more violent. <laughs> and in Rio, it was actually shocking. A week before World Cup started, there was an unprecedented police raid on an apartment building of sex workers um, just outside of Rio. Um, it was massive in scope. There were over 100 women that were um, arrested without warrants, um, forced to testify against themselves without the presence of a lawyer, um, they all reported being robbed. A number reported being abused, and a few of them were gang raped by police during the raid. Mm. So, just massive human rights abuses. Uh, and the raid was in the name of fighting sexual exploitation. Right. That was like the purported. That was like the purpose of the raid. And so, one woman actually spoke out against the violence that had happened that day. She went by Isabel, is this kind of name, and then came out publicly as Joyce, which is who she actually is. As soon as she testified publicly against the police violence, she was kidnapped. She's Mm. had three attempts on her life in the last year um, from police and militia and people who want her to be quiet and not not talk about what happened. Uh, And meanwhile, not a single NGO that was in Rio at that same time frame fighting, purportedly fighting sexual violence and sexual exploitation had anything to say or any support to offer. Right. Uh, and Joyce was kind of floored over the last year at how she's been in hiding with no money and no resources. And if, I was like, Joyce, if you were an anti-trafficking victim, you'd have your own foundation right now and you'd be rolling in the big bucks. Um, but because she identifies as a sex worker, not only will no anti-trafficking NGOs get near her, but the Brazilian government has also refused to help her. So all the paths that would normally be open to someone like her to seek redress, um, obviously her prosecution is, like, nobody's being prosecuted for anything that happened right. in the hands of police, including her kidnapping. They just, like, didn't open the cases. Um, but but the federal government has refused to, they've said, if you give up your children, and uh, then we can help you. Or if you admit that you're a victim and go into witness protection, we can help you. But there's no option for her to say, I am a sex worker. I would like to continue doing this. 
and I would like the people who did this to me to be brought to justice. Uh, so that's what I'm kind of talking about, like collateral damage of the, it's crazy to think that there could be any other side to the anti-sex trafficking movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that the other side actually d- directly represses sex workers, I find to be bitterly ironic. Yeah. Yeah, they're pur- they're purporting to be these saviors for people, and yet they're not actually helping the people that need the support. Yeah. And in Rio, actually, um, there was no, for example, no one was passing out condoms. Hmm. There wasn't even that kind of like, let's have safe sex. Like the, the FIFA Fan Fest medical kiosk didn't even have condoms. There were no NGOs passing out condoms. You had people passing out pamphlets saying, don't buy sex from the locals. <laughs> so the investigator in me wants to like, keeps asking what, like, why, what is this about? And it, it do you think it's just about this broader sex negative culture um i I mean or is it way more complex than that i've wondered if like if i kind of lost my innocence with this particular issue but if this isn't (laughs) something that we could say about most media narratives I wonder. I was just like, I can't believe there's such a disconnect between what I read about this and what's in the movies, and what my experience has actually been with what's happening with this global population. And it's made me question now, like everything I read, um, because mm. I'll read something and I'll laugh, and I'm like, that's not even a legitimate source. That's a number that I've done research on. That's just total BS. Like. You could kind of like pick pick news articles apart and just like redline them mm-hmm. and be like, this is total, like this would get an F in class, you know, right, and people right. are buying this up. So I've kind of wondered if, if we're not talking just more broadly about um, media mm. narratives, but particularly with moral panics, how we can get whipped up into a frenzy around something that how could it be anything but a good thing? Right. So when there's right. an anti-trafficking bill, how could you be possibly be against that? or you know a measure to protect trafficking victims like it's such an insidious issue because how could there be another side to it i think and 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 so i would go back and say okay the the way i tried to like step into this narrative was to say okay my goal is to find sex workers who are willing to talk to me on camera and amplify their voice and yeah. just like try to get their voices out there. So in the case of Rio, have sex workers in Rio themselves talking about what their expectations were for the World Cup, what the experience was like for them, what their experience is like living life. And people are like, oh my God, I can't believe I can't believe these women have opinions of themselves. I'm like, yeah, like they're actually people. So one one man, probably the most like, there were a number of hard m- moments in the project, but one was an interview with a woman named Natalia which is published, it's called Rest in Peace, Natalia. And I wasn't even there for it. Alini interviewed her. And Natalia talks about like pretty this pretty horrific story before she was a sex worker about being gang raped. And she ended up being hospitalized for over a year and lost some major organs and wound up infected with HIV. And just, it was, wow. uh, it was an absolutely like um, uh, brutal story. Um, and she, at the time Alini interviewed her, was working in the red light district was like this proud mom of three kids was talking about her kids and the point is like she has she she had until she died her own narrative about her life Mm. so people who've been through the kinds of circumstances we could not even imagine you know nightmarish cases of sexual violence or sex trafficking or actually being forced to go sell yourself because you couldn't pay for the bus like that's some like really all really heavy, awful experiences. They seem so far out of my realm of understanding. Wow, there are people who can actually talk about their experience and have a perspective about it. Um, you know, and, and kind of last point on that um, uh, was that four of the women we interviewed did qualify as sex trafficking victims at some point. Mm. They had their own voice as well. Like, they had their own opinions for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what, if, if, if we're actually going to say we're, we're purportedly concerned about this population of people, we need to start passing them the mic and listening to what they have to say for themselves. So the two kind of ahas I'm getting from all of this is this piece around media narrative, which, you know, media literacy and constructive criticism is a lot of us are aware of, of the stories that are weaved in the media. Um, and particularly around women and how women are exploited in the media, et cetera. Um, and then the other piece is this morality piece. And, and we see this 
for all different causes all over the world and particularly Western folk, privileged Western folk going in and trying to save or fix. Um, and a lot of times the local people are like, leave us the fuck alone. Like, <laughs> you know, get the fuck out of here. We don't even <laughs> want your help. Um, so, you know, the, there's some really big questions here of like what our motivations are and really, um, yes, giving these um silenced populations a voice and actually listening to these people that were trying to quote unquote help or save and you raise a great point like in the case of brazil whose place is it to go to another country where sex work is legal and foreigners having sex with sex workers is legal and like impose like impose our will upon their lives Mm -hmm. there's like real people at the end of the day it's kind of funny to me that that like that's totally okay mm-hmm. in this frame wrapped up in this framework of doing good and being heroic and is there any like next phase like where's your project now is there a next phase to your this particular work um in its in its kind of final expression i envision um the website having probably over 100 published short interviews um and have very have it be very choose your own adventure style so you could walk in, you could watch two minutes of content or two hours. Hmm. There will probably be 10 hours published by the time it's done and kind of follow follow the conversation path you want. Some people are really fixated on like the mechanics, like how does it work? How much do you charge? How do you decide what you will and won't do? You know, kind of want to approach the work side. Mm-hmm. Other people are kind of interested in like, what are your relationships like? Can you love? Do your kids know? You know, or how did you get started in this? Um, there's a whole other narrative you can cut through the story, which is World Cup, starting mm-hmm. from the raids before World Cup through this kind of story of what happened with Joy speaking up against the raids and the research and come out the other end. Um, so I'd kind of envision it as as some an archive of content that you could navigate easily. Um, but I'm I'm happy that it's as far as it is now because it's been completely self-funded solo project, which has been hard. Wow. I wouldn't do it. I don't know if I would say I wouldn't do it alone if I did it again because it wouldn't have happened if I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's there's no support for like if there's no support for sex worker organizations, there's not going to be support for media projects about sex workers. Yeah, um, which is kind of funny. But the entrepreneur in me goes back to saying being really grateful that I had this like decade long detour of working in the business of digital media because I felt like I had the toolkit to actually construct something from scratch and at no point be like oh man this would really happen if I got published or if someone gave me fifty thousand dollars or if I knew someone with a camera there was something gratifying about kind of going in having this like chance moment with people I'd never met Mm. and the, the kind of digital beauty of us being able to capture and publish on our own we're living in the craziest moment um, I think with digital expression, which goes back to the kind of, I feel like we we are in this place where we're like, oh, even the first world, even the third world's coming online, you know, and like yeah. Facebook and Google and Twitter, are like, what about the next billion? Everyone's like really hot talking about the next billion and how they'll just be doing micropayments on SMS and they're like mobile phones. There's kind of like this idea that we're all online now and represented and you can find anyone's perspective on the mm. internet like everything and it's raised the question for me like oh my gosh who else aren't we hearing from yeah in this kind of digital space where supposedly everyone can speak for themselves Mm. and it's made me wonder like who you know who uh, there's there's people in that shadow or margin that I'm not thinking of yeah or else they wouldn't be there because you'd be able to identify them and I'm really (laughs) appreciating that you just you didn't make a documentary film with this. You didn't create the narrative. You just put the stories up there. And there's something super powerful about that that I just wanted to highlight. Like, you get the raw, real, non-edited, um, n- yeah, non-constructed story from these people. Um, so, Thanks. yes, like, I would love to see more of that from, you know, more of these people who are in living in the shadows literally not seen 
Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people go, oh, like, why didn't you interview clients? Or are you going to do another project about men? What about what they had to say? Hmm. And I'm like, great. Like, I hope someone else does that project. I'm sure they would have fascinating things to say. But once again, that's someone speaking on behalf of. And I really wanted to get get to what sex workers have to say about themselves. And I think the final big piece that I'm getting from this is, you know, back to sex is inherently bad. And, um, yeah, it's bad and it's especially bad to pay for it. And it's especially bad if you have a lot of it. Um, it's especially bad if you have it out of wedlock or love. Um, and hey, you know, thousands of years ago, we had the priestess temples and it was a, a sacred offering and they had lots of sex all day long <laughs> and they were revered as the wisdom keepers and, um, you know, the spiritual guides. So I'd never had an answer to the question of like, if you could be born in another time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always like post-medicine I would maybe choose that um, that's kind of amazing yeah yeah um, and so just to wrap up I know you've done like a lot of research around other digital sex stuff and I wish I had more time to get into that with you but any like hot trends or interesting things because that's a world I'm really not familiar with Oh, I would like maybe pose a pose a question a bit. Mm-hmm. So um, I wrote a story about uh, how much of the internet is for porn. It was when I was writing for Forbes. This was like 2011. And I interviewed this neuroscientist, uh, Ogi Ogas. And these two guys, the other guy, Cy got him. And they did this like big data dump of like digital porn behavior basically. And the thing that shocked me, even though it's like eons ago, uh, four years in internet time, um, was that the biggest adult property on the planet according to their data was a was not a porn site it was a webcam site mm-hmm. called live jasmine um and one then, person uh no no okay so it's, it's a platform okay i was like whoa <laughs> it was a massive massive and as soon as i published that the porn hub pr people were like we're the biggest it's not live jasmine they just buy pop under ads and whatever but it was um i was blown the, the stats are crazy if you google how much of the internet is for porn you'll find it i don't remember offhand um but i was kind of blown away and i said wow webcam so this is where you've got um usually a woman but not always right um and she's on one side of the camera and it's either a one-to-one live chat where you're paying for it or it's one-to-many so a lot of porn stars now are doing like mm-hmm. maybe one-to-many you got all sorts of people in the comments i'm sure you've seen this mm-hmm. um it's like the next wave of porn and so i sit here and go okay in the u.s we've got pornography is legal regulated and celebrated as part of mainstream like pop media culture mm-hmm. like you've got porn stars as actors and like it's just a cultural reference now right um and any man with an internet connection watches porn like mm-hmm. that's just like undisputable you know (laughs) undisputable and then you've got prostitution which is illegal and bad and dirty and all this kind of stuff and I'm like wow if I had to choose between those two options I think like I would rather be paid for sex than be paid for sex while signing my rights away to the footage in all mediums and all perpetuity Mm. Uh, the, the kind of I, I would actually choose to be a sex worker over a porn star. That mm-hmm. would be my personal choice. Mm-hmm. But anyway, one is legal and one is illegal, and there's a, a massive gap between them. So I would just kind of end posing the question of, you know, then what's webcam work? You know, is that digital? Um, is that digital prostitution? Is that virtual? Is that interactive porn? Um, and and kind of to force that to say if this is like the emerging number one type of adult content that's being consumed. How can we have two faces about this? Yeah. Ooh, Someone reconcile that for me. Yeah. Well, wow. That seems like an avenue into um, legalizing sex work, potentially. Like if you film I'm gonna, it, it's I'm okay, going to take that know? jump. I'm going to take that jump because I would love to see sex work legalized. And I would love, yeah, I would, I would you know, I, someday I'll put resources into that. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, at a certain point, I realized that this is not a neutral issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the journalist in me was like learning about all sides. Mm-hmm. And I remember the moment it happened. I was like, this is not a neutral issue. You're either 
support this category of people having the same civil rights that the rest of us have or you don't mm-hmm. yeah but mm. thank you it's been really thank you labor of love yeah and and one more time the name of your project it's called the red light rio project and it's at redlightr.io Great. And anywhere else you want people to know to find you, Twitter, anything um, like that? Or you can sign up for the newsletter there. I'm at jruve on Twitter as well. Okay, great. Thanks Thank so much you. for having me. Yeah. Such an honor. 